trust that you've had a good break, uh, whatever is going on in your life, unless you're an adult and actually work, you've had a few days off, congratulations for having those days off, but if you've been out of school for a while and now you're back to the daily grind, uh, congratulations for surviving the break, I guess, is the order. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to go to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to kind of bounce around a little bit tonight. This will be the last uh, time of the foreseeable future, unless something changes, where we won't uh, be, you won't hear me speaking outside of the book of Romans on Wednesday night. So uh, we'll bounce around a little bit tonight, want to uh, encourage you and hopefully challenge you about thinking in regards to starting the new year. I, and I recognize that we're a little over two a bad idea to just double check and make sure you know where we are. So if you would stand with me, we're just going to read one verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It'll kind of launch us into our time together this evening. We're going to look at verse number 18 together. This is God's word to us. Paul writes, concluding here to the uh, church of Thessalonica, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. With that, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we want to uh, approach you and recognize that you are far greater than we could ever imagine or even at some level comprehend. And so we're thankful this evening that you are sovereignly in control of all things, that nothing that happens in our lives or in our day is a surprise to you. And so as we think tonight about what does this year mean to some of us thinking about what does this new decade hold for us, I ask that you would help us to approach your word tonight with an open ear and an open heart to listen to your word that not only ourselves individually but collectively as a college community and as part of a church we can learn and hear from you we also think tonight um, of our friends here in sermon two this evening the boys look at a college degree at grace way and don't get that God, we have a, and I hope we have a collective desire to see college students of our nation become leaders and knowledgeable and that they would walk with godliness of life. God, you would expand your kingdom both in terms of those that are at our college students but also those at our university. So be with us now as we uh, make our way to your word. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Um, to read and, and watch and listen to people uh, talk about this idea that when it comes to running races, specifically thinking about short distance races, starting well doesn't guarantee that you will win the race, but it does guarantee that you won't lose it. What we know in 
short distance races specifically it's the first few steps will set the collective direction and opportunities for success and so is true in our lives so is true in a, a lot of different things uh, and tonight what i'm hoping to do in our time together is really do two things is to challenge you specifically to think about the upcoming year beyond just a resolution-ish or type view and approach in regards to your own personal spiritual life, but then also challenge us collectively as a college community to think about what does the upcoming year hold for us. And so what I've tried to do to the best of my ability is try to distill down into a few thoughts um, some things that I think would serve us well individually and collectively to approach the upcoming year. You could say there are three attitudes or mindsets that should permeate our college ministry and then individually. But the important thing tonight to understand is this. When we talk about these mindsets, what we are tempted to do, even though I'll say I want to challenge us collectively as a college community, we are tempted to ultimately make all spiritual intake we have focus on ourselves. To go, yeah, that's great. You're the college pastor. Challenge the college ministry. But I'm going to really just focus on me, right? Me, here, me, me, poor me, all me, right? The great because that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the importance we play in the life of our local church. Um, But this idea of making everything in Christianity about you, every sermon you hear is all about, well, what did I personally get out of this? How is this challenging me? How do I make this relationship with Jesus all about just focusing on me? And so I want you to understand tonight, there's a dual purpose. We're not just trying to apply sermons to ourselves, though we need to. We also need to make sure that our friends are thinking about the things that they're hearing. We also need to make sure our small groups are thinking about the things that we're hearing. We also need to make sure our college community collectively is thinking the same thing and process as we do. A lot of times you'll hear pastors say, don't listen to a sermon of a specific sermon to your own life, thinking through how a particular sermon or lesson or small group discussion would benefit a friend is not a bad thing to do. In fact, we should encourage it. If you've been challenged by something and it's changed the way that you think about life, you should share that with other people. That's the whole point of the gospel. Imagine if we applied the same line of thinking to the gospel. Imagine if we said, I have been radically redeemed by the gospel. But nobody else needs to hear that except me. That would be heavy story. But when it comes to sermons and lessons and videos and blogs and podcasts, 
we're like, well, this would be really good for so-and-so. And they're like, why are you judging me? I, I just want to encourage you. I'm not trying to judge you. So with those kind of thoughts ringing in our ears, I want to just take us to three things that I've really tried to pray and make sure that they're directed from God's word to us. It could be a hundred things, but I think these three things will help us in all kinds of ways as Joseph John said, to grow us and our power to endure both spiritually and and in our relationships and our relationships. So number one tonight, and it shouldn't shock you given the verse that we read together, but I think a first mindset that has to permeate our thoughts for different culture is one of thankfulness. Look at first Thessalonians chapter five again. Paul says In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Thankfulness, this idea of gratitude, is not just something that we have come the end of November on a specific day when we gorge ourselves on food, watch the Lions lose a football game, and go buy discount large screen TVs. But in the modern Christian world, that seems to be about the only time that we ever seem to be talking about thankfulness or gratitude. You know, you, you hear that the, the coined phrase of make sure you have an attitude of gratitude. I remember being a small child growing up in a very um, interesting uh, Baptist church and singing songs by a, a man named Patch the Pirate about having an attitude of gratitude. I'm telling you, my childhood was weird. The fact that I'm just wearing a a, a watermelon shirt is a credit to itself that I've made it this far. And Patch the Pirate was a real, yeah, just, you can Google that on your own time and just understand, just bask in the glory of independent fundamental Baptists. They're an interesting group of people to say the least. But this idea of being thankful and and grateful for what you have. Paul here is thankful for all the things that he has seen God do, especially in the context of 1 Thessalonians, seeing many Gentile believers come to know Jesus Christ. In in fact, if you were to read the Apostle Paul widely, more often than not, he's thankful for what's happening spiritually in the lives of everybody around him. And Paul maintains this attitude of thankfulness. He maintains this attitude of gratitude, if we want to use that phrase, in in spite of difficulties, in in spite of the troubles that come his way. He experiences hardship, but if we read the book of Acts and we consider some shipwrecks in Egypt, level was a, a wonderful film about his life that that is distributing here's a man who maintains the thankfulness even though his life seems to take most of us are not facing that kind of hardship most of us in this particular room tonight are, are not facing the things that Paul's going to face in the book of Acts, and the apostles face in the book of Acts. And we're going to talk about that in a a moment, but Paul's spirit, his overwhelming and overarching spirit was one of thankfulness for God's grace in his life and in the lives of the people he's with. And that he's 
given to us in the New Testament to give us that particular victory. But I think this should be not only our attitude personally, right? We have been given God's grace. Those of us in this room who trusted Christ as our Savior, that is the greatest amount of grace that we've ever been given. It's the, the greatest gift we've been given. We don't deserve it. There's nothing inherently in us that makes God go, oh, man, like if we just had him, then we'd be able to really turn the world upside down. That's the consistent testimony of the scriptures. And, and think about how tonight, just specifically in your own life, how God has blessed you. You know, I, I get it. College is difficult. Everyone's going through college. And I don't know that anybody's saying that any of the result is easy. I, I think the most people are there that tell you that, oh, just grow up, be tough, like that's part of life, like being an adult is is easy. I think either they're a trust-fund kid or, or, or they have never uh, lived in the reality of the world around them. If you're a trust-fund kid, I'm sorry that didn't make fun of you, but literally this is one of the best parts of what I'm going to say. overarching theme of your life, though, the fact that you were born where you were, and yes, I understand that many of you have achieved parts of in your life, but compared to most people who live on this globe, nothing. That's a hard pill to swallow. And then think about not just lonely, right, because this is a rich person life, but but what about inside of our college community? Well, I think that as, as a college ministry, we can be grateful. And, and I try to model this. I don't think I do a very good job of it, but I, I'm right preaching this to you as I teach it. I think that we can do. I remember when we moved into this particular building, um, my parents, it wasn't just a demo, it was my parents living in the back room. And it was a real eye-opening moment because as we walked through those doors, my parents made this observation because I was real little in original church building in Iowa, and I have some very vague in my recollection, but my parents were quick to remind me, hey, your college dormitory, this place that you sit right now, is the same size of the church that you grew up in. You minister to college students in a space that's larger than the original church you grew up in. You just get highlighted. I think we take this church for granted. I think we take our pastor for granted. I think we take each other for granted. I I just wrote down here some things that I think should cause you to pause tonight and be thankful. I I think about our adult leaders who week in and week out make the conscious decision to not go and fellowship with people their own age, but rather come in and spend time with you. And I got to be real honest with you, as your pastor, I'm blown away that they do it for free. Because some of you, I wouldn't hang out with you any more than what I do, and I get paid to do it. They consciously make the decision that they're going to sacrifice their time to stick around and hang out and eat food with you at Collective. Or, as we saw modeled for us this past semester, 
come as close as humanly possible to getting a concussion without actually getting one, sliding around in ice. <laughs> Michelle, that it probably hasn't worn off yet because she just got that I was talking about curling. The fact that they would give up their weekend and drive you to Oklahoma and spend a weekend watching you knock each other almost unconscious with a six-foot-large six uh, uh, beach volleyball. Or how about this? That they're willing to get up in your grill, and then you have a terrible attitude about it, and you're unkind and unthankful because they're willing to invest their lives in you. They still come back the next Sunday with a concussion. That they don't just give up on you and go, well, they have a bad attitude, or I don't like the tone that they're talking in. Think about our small group leaders. Our small group leaders that spend their time away from you, texting you and encouraging you. Think about them organizing and trying to get uh, small group activities. And, and to keep doing them, even though they plan them and everything under the sun becomes more important than that small group activity. And so three of them are there, two leaders, maybe one other student, but they keep doing it. Think about our worship team. You know, I think about how they come in week in and week out and prepare and, and they lead us so well. I can go literally anywhere with them this summer and people are like, this is what you get to do when you get up in the morning for an hour to preach. The fact that I go places to preach and teach God's word because he is kind to allow me to do that and get up to preach behind a worship team that honestly, compared to our college ministry worship team, where are my people? Wish, I wish I could bring my band with us. I wish I could bring our worship team with us because they at least, we're at least making some better noise to the Lord. I don't even know what to call what we've just experienced. I'm just going to get up and preach and then hope that the rapture happens right after I get done so we don't have to sing a response song in the beginning. I'm sorry, that was really, really hard. But being grateful for the people who week in and week out lead us in worship. I go places, I'm, I'm being serious when I said that to a certain degree. I don't pray for the rapture to happen, but I do, I, I, I really go to a lot of different places and I hear a lot of different people play and sing and go, oh my goodness, what were the qualifications to get here? Think about our hospitality team. Week in, week out, different people standing up and, and greeting and, 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 and making sure that our, we have an atmosphere and an environment that's welcoming to the about Jess and she probably she hates it when I do this but you know it's not easy being married to me I am an enigma wrapped inside of a lot of different things <laughs> you know but she makes sure that we're charting in the right direction she prays for you more than we will ever know she reminds me that if I give up on you we'll have to move. Just kidding, I'm not. But there are seriously times where I come home 
very discouraged. He has to be the one to rally because there is no one else that's doing it. Then also think about you. Nobody's requiring you to be useful. In some senses, this is your job as a Christian to love people. I, I think if we let this idea of being thankful permeate into our culture, that people go, it's a really weird place. They're really kind of crazy, and they're really over-the-top thankful for everything. I think that speaks volumes about how many people in Christ we don't love. When we start to be like, well, I don't like this, and I don't like that, and this isn't what I would want to do, or this activity doesn't meet my felt needs, or I don't really like this series, or I don't really like this on a Sunday morning, or I don't like that they're doing that in the church, or blah, whatever. That critical spirit infiltrates a ministry and it infiltrates a church, and what it does is it bogs down a people from recognizing that apart from the grace of God, they would be spending eternity in a real and living hell. So I just ask you, how are you doing at expressing your general thankfulness? In the way that you pray? In the way that you talk? In your attitude towards other people? And I just want to challenge you. You don't have to do it tonight. But I want to challenge you in next week to think about two different people, anybody inside of our college community, and express your thankfulness to them. To begin to build into your life a regular habit of being thankful. All right, enough of that. Let's move away from be thankful. Let's get to enjoying the thankfulness. Acts chapter 5. Let's look there quickly. We must, as... Some New Testament writers say, make haste. Pick up the pace. The New Year's resolution is to try and focus on not counting calories. We'll see how poorly I fail at that this year. Acts chapter 5, and let's read verses 34 through 42 together. I, I think we start with thankfulness. And what that thankfulness does is it naturally bleeds into what the second thought is. The second attitude. And that's one of compassion. Acts chapter 5, let's look at verse 34. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named uh, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. Now, to set the context here, the apostles have been brought in. They're being put on trial. These guys keep going into town, preaching the gospel. It radically changes the nature and the characteristics of the towns that they're in. And the religious people, as what always happens with religious people, when you start to get on fire for Jesus, religious people get upset and put people on trial. Look at verse 35. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Judas rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest... You even be found to fight against God. 
And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, doesn't sound like they really agreed that much, but they beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, and daily in the temple and every house they did not cease speaking and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Here's what happens. When you truly encounter Jesus Christ, when he really has become everything to you, there is an unmistakable unquenchable passion to make him known. These guys literally get the tar kicked out of them and they leave praising and exalting that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. When we are passionate about Jesus, understand this. When we are passionate about Jesus, it shows to other people. It comes through. And I don't mean passionate about Jesus in that you're a moral person. This is what ends up happening. We're like, well, if I just live the right way, then everybody will go, what's different about him? And then they'll ask me, and I'll be like a really cool evangelist. That doesn't happen. There are all kinds of moral people, people who live the quote-unquote right way. There's a difference. These guys can't shut up about Jesus. It's not over the top, but they're going into every town, and and they're saying, look, you don't understand what Jesus has done in my life, and it's flipping towns upside down. They say, okay, so Gamaliel, this uh, really smart religious leader, says, guys, understand this, and this is what he says. And he refers to two secular teachers. See, a lot of times we think Jesus is the first guy who shows up on the scene and is like, hey, I'm the king of the, uh, of the, the nation of Israel, and I'm here to usher in the kingdom of God, and everybody should follow me. Understand this, that he's not the first one to do it. We, we know that Judas does it, and then Judas of Galilee also does it. They both show up, and they both claim to be God. And what ends up happening is they gather together a small following, and when they're killed, then ultimately that following dies off. They go back. They're like, well, if they killed him, they're going to kill me. What changes with Jesus, and this is what shakes the world, and this is why this council doesn't know what to do with these guys. According to what the, the people who put Jesus in the tomb, remember, if you go back to the gospel accounts, Jesus dies, he's buried, and when he rises again, there's a whole century of guards there around the tomb that are knocked out, and the religious leaders pay them to say that people came and stole the body of Jesus. So there's a rumor floating around town that that Jesus, his body had been stolen, but these apostles don't live like that. These apostles live like Jesus is still very much alive. And this is what Gamaliel is pointing out. These guys are still passionately following Jesus as much as they were when he was alive as he is now dead. Because they all think that Jesus is legitimately dead and the apostles know he's very much alive. Because they walked down the Emmaus Road, they had gathered together, and and he had seen the Lord ascend into heaven. The question I have for us tonight is, what has happened to our passion? What has happened to our desire to see college students come to know Jesus 
and, and not even just college students, everybody that we come into contact with to, to, to come to understand that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's what I don't understand. I've really been wrestling with this inside of my own brain, which is a terrible place for any of you to be. But here's what I'm, I don't really get. We're, we're very passionate about what we do. We, we got a job, we're passionate about it. Or we're passionate about getting to the next job. We're passionate about getting to whatever we're going to school for, or whatever the goal is in life, whatever it looks like. We're passionate about that. We're passionate about our hobbies. We're, we're, we're passionate about the movies that we watch. We're passionate about the sports teams we enjoy. We're pa- I mean, we're passionate about things that I mean, most people don't care about. In your own life, you probably have a couple things that you're really excited about that if people actually knew, they would make fun of you. That's what happens in my own life. People make fun of me all the time about the little things that I'm into. We're passionate about everything in life. But there's a growing segment of Christians that their passion level is at this. It's the lowest common denominator passion level. Show up to church, sit and listen to a sermon, absorb some material, sing some songs, act really passionate about Jesus, raise your hand at the right time, clap at the right time, amen at the right time, and then they leave and nothing about them says anything that they've encountered the real, true, and living God. Their lives aren't markedly different because they know Jesus. Which begs this question. It naturally must beg this question. How many of the people that you and I know in our lives that claim to be Christ followers are really Christ followers? Because to spend much time with them at all, you would never know that they even follow Jesus Christ. Some of you have friends like this. Some of you went home or have hung out with people who came back into the city over the break. You've even discovered people that you've been friends with for months or even years who tell you that they're a Christ follower, and you go, really? You are a Christ follower? And then I always ask myself, how many of the people that I know have been confronted with that in my life that I follow Jesus? Where's the struggling to get through 15 days of reading my Bible, right? And you're, you're, you're having to fan that flame. But I'm just asking, where's your general drive to make much of Jesus? Are, are you, like, are, does this, has this really affected your life? that you haven't gotten too comfortable in life yet because 
with you because you think that God kicked the life out of you to where you're just a little bit more passionate and edgy than older people. based on who God is, not based on who you are, and you're passionate about that, I think this is the natural overflow of it. It's, it's, it's hard work. We don't talk about this really at all inside of our Christian community. I think we're afraid that if we say this in our church, we could work hard for suggestions to come out of the church and for salvation to come out of the church. We're not making that suggestion because the Bible teaches us that as Christians, this is hard work. It's Colossians 3.23 says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. And in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul's going to say, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So if you're a thankful Christian and you're a passionate Christian, the natural overflow of this is that you're going to work hard for the Lord. And I don't mean work hard to work hard so that you get ahead. This isn't working hard for blessing's sake. It's working hard for God's glory's sake. Idea that that we would carry Christ everywhere with us and work hard at proclaiming Him in every sphere and aspect of our life. It's almost as if, and I don't think it's just a, a young thing to say. Old people love to tell. opportunity employer and doesn't discriminate on age, race, or sex. But again, if we look at most of the Christian church at large, right, you, you, you do realize that, there, that every church doesn't have a program for doing systematic outreach, right? You do realize that this idea of inviting and, and really pursuing and, and trying to go after people who are maybe a little bit interested in the church doesn't happen everywhere. You, you do realize that there aren't guys who lock themselves in their offices from 8 in the morning till noon and have already been up since 6 meeting with God preparing sermons for the, the church at large. You, you do realize, you do realize that there aren't
summer class, which is the first two years of Tech Camp up here, uses the Civic Camp language. And it's easy to ascend here and to begin to think that this is home. But I can assure you it's not. All I have to do is spend time going around and talking to friends and family members who aren't pastors just left their church to join a new church because for whatever the reason was, the people in leadership for the last 25 years just refused to listen to any outside voices. Those are my needs, and I want to challenge you with this. I'm willing to work hard to see our colleges grow, not numerically first, but it means that we focus on growing spiritually first, and the Lord rewards the desire to grow spiritually by allowing other people for us to impact as we go deeper. So we're going to go deeper. We're going to push ourselves to think about, continue to think about why do we believe what we believe, to to understand God's word. We're going to talk next week about launching new Bible study groups, new discipleship groups. We're going to take the kitchen sink approach to our college ministry. We're going to throw everything we can at you, and where you can jump in and get involved, we want you to jump in and get involved. But to sit on the sidelines and go, well, it doesn't necessarily, you've got to make a decision that you're willing to sacrifice to go to work. Not just for your own sake, but for the sake of the person to your left and to your right and to your female and the mythical person on your left and your right. There's a genuine desire Some of you, this is like the first or the second or the first real month that you've been around our college ministry and now you're like, but I can't make the first month of my new ministry. Don't be afraid of that. Press into that reality because you impact people that I can't reach. So we're going to do something like that. Here's the hope. You're going to take me equip those leaders and you to do the work of the ministry. We're not going to do anything goofy. We're not going to auction off cars because we don't have cars. Like, nobody wants our cars. I don't even want my car. Like, barely. You don't want it. Buying a nice fancy Bentley, though, that's great. Like, we're not going to give away iPads or trips to Tahiti or anything like that. Because what you win people with is what you keep people with. So guess what? Look at the need here and say, I want to be more thankful for what God has done. Personally and collectively. I want to be more passionate about Jesus. Personally and collectively. And I'm willing to work hard personally and collectively. I'm going to give you some unique ways that you can do that this week. Don't don't leave this morning thinking, get me now after the Lord gives you those impressions for that hard work. Let's go, church.